here tonight. Thankful for the time to be here tonight. We pray that you would teach, we would listen, let your spirit lead, guide, and direct. Help us not just to hear it, but to apply it and all we say and do. And go out and be a light and a witness for you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do the first ten verses here of 1 John chapter 3. Now, once again, if time would allow, it would be great to do all five chapters of 1 John at the same time because you see these themes that are developing and we just don't have the time to do that. So if you remember correctly, last week we left off in 28 and 29. We said, and now little children of chapter 2, and now little children abide in him, that when he appears may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now the problem is, boom, chapter breaks. So we stop and we think that's the completed thought. Please remember in the original writings, they're not chapter breaks, they're not verses. Those were added about 1,500 years later for us to be able to better understand this. But when you stop right there, you realize the next theme that he's going to get into is this idea of verse 28, the appearance of Jesus Christ in times, and also in verse 29, the subject of righteousness. Righteousness is a really big word. Just remember, righteousness means to be made right. You can't be made right. I can't be made right. Jesus Christ has to make us right. So that's the theme here that he's going to develop. Now, we're going to end off in verse 10. And this, the children of God and the children of devil, are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. That's our segue into next week, the idea of love. So we have to kind of do this in bite-sized little segments here, but you see a theme developing. So 28 and 29 take us into end times and righteousness, and that's what verses 1 through 9 deal with here. So let's just get right into this. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Verse 1, Behold what manner of love. I think of that song. And that idea in verse 1, that you are called a child of God. That's amazing. That, that you are a child of God. Don't, don't let that go over your head. That the God of the universe, that created the world out of nothing, has chosen to call you His child because of who you are in Christ Jesus. That, that's utterly life-changing. So you are a child of God. What do you get... Out of being a child of God. I just got quick three points about this before we move on and to go into this a little bit deeper. First thing you get is the idea of a relationship with him. Can you go with me please to Romans chapter 8? I think what happens is we almost take for granted this concept of being a child of God. Maybe some of you were raised in a Christian home. And so therefore as far as, far back as you can remember, you've been a child of God. Maybe some of you got saved later on in life and maybe it hit you a little harder, this idea that you were lost and then you were taken into this family, this body of Christ. What's it mean to be a child of God? Romans chapter 8, let's pick it up here in verse 15. Romans eight fifteen. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Okay, now there's a couple points here. We're talking about being a child of God. And I want you to understand the relationship you have with God. Verse 15, you have been adopted by Him. You've been adopted by Him. Well, why did I have to be adopted by God? Because isn't everybody who's born a child of God? No. Jesus made it very clear in the Gospels that you were of your father the devil. 
So before I got saved, I was of my father, the devil. And God, the father, still chose to adopt me. This is why when it comes to marriage, it's so vital that you start your marriage out with two born-again believers. Because if you have a marriage with a believer and a non-believer, the believer's father-in-law is Satan. I'm not saying that to make a joke. That's the reality of what we're dealing with here. And so you see this idea that you have been adopted, Abba, Father. That is an Aramaic word, and sometimes people kind of call it Daddy. That idea of a close relationship that you have been adopted. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, Dawn and I do foster care, and you see some of these kids in the foster care system that are desperate for a family. They just want somebody to love them. And to love them unconditionally. And to bring them in and say, you are my child. And that's what happens with adoption. God the Father has adopted us through the Holy Spirit, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, same chapter. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You're a child of God. That is just unbelievable to stop and really think about what that is. And not only a child of God, verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them, that we also may be glorified together with them. So the three points of being a child of God, the first one is the relationship. He is your dad. He is your daddy. You are not left alone. That's why Jesus said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. You have a relationship with him. Point number two, did you catch it in verse 17? You have an inheritance. What do you get to inherit? Verse 17. You're a joint heir with Christ. What type of inheritance do you get? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1. What is an inheritance? Inheritance is something that your parents leave to you. So if I'm a child of God, God my Father is giving me something. What is my inheritance that I get? Ephesians chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So therefore, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, which is the guarantee that you have inherited. What have you inherited? You've inherited eternal life. You've inherited eternal peace. You've inherited eternal love. You've inherited an eternal home in heaven. That is your inheritance. So don't ever walk around in this world thinking that you're poor and beggarly, because you're not. You're a child of God, that has inherited the glories of heaven. And not only inherited them, what did it say in Romans chapter 8? You're a joint heir with Christ. It's not that God says, I'm just going to give you a little bit. Jesus says, you get a full share like I got the full share. Joint heir. Isn't that amazing when you stop and think about it? So when it says in 1 John 3 that you're a child of God, don't let that go over your head. And it always kind of bothers me when I run into a believer that wants to walk around in this kind of mopey attitude of, woe is me, how awful is my life? Do not understand what we just read. You're a child of God. You get to call God Daddy. You get to have an inheritance with Him. Why in the world are we walking around like we're defeated? That's why it says in Romans 8 that we're more than conquerors in Christ. The problem is we're judging our inheritance by what happens on this earth rather than our inheritance which happens in heaven. If you keep your mind on this earth, you are going to walk around depressed and discouraged. 
You've got to get past this earth. You've got to look towards heaven. That's why Colossians says, set your mind on things above. So the three points of being a child of God is the relationship I have with him. I am adopted. The second one is I have an inheritance. And the last one comes out of Hebrews 4.16. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. It's since I am a child of God, since I have a relationship with God the Father, I have now, here's our third point, access to God. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we have maintained mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can boldly come to the throne of grace. Why? Because you're his child. You're his child. So therefore, you have complete, utter access to heaven through what Jesus Christ did. It always kind of fascinates me when I see people praying and they start out this idea of like, you know, God, it's me. Remember me, James? You know, we haven't talked in a while. What are you talking about? It's your dad. He hasn't forgotten you. He loves you. He's right there. You have access to that. And that access, you can boldly go to the throne of grace. And you can go right to him as a child that is hurt that wants to go right to their father and sit on his lap and say, I want this access to God. Please understand these points. And you may not get it all right now. Chew on this for a while. You are a child of God. Behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. I have a relationship with him because I'm adopted. I have an inheritance waiting for me and I have access to him. Now, why is this difficult? Because look at the last part of verse 1. Therefore, therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. See, the world doesn't know us in any way whatsoever. Because we're really just heaven-bound. That's our home. C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and I'm paraphrasing it here. He goes, maybe the longer you walk with the Lord, and maybe the longer you realize that this world and you don't fit... It's just confirmation that you weren't made for this world. And there's a lot of truth to that. The deeper you go in Christ, the more you realize, I don't really click down here. I used to click down here really great. I used to find this world really comfortable. I really enjoyed it. I liked everything it had to offer. And then the deeper I go with Christ, the more I realize I'm really uncomfortable down here. Because this isn't my home. That's why the Bible says we're sojourners. That's why the Bible says we're passing through. That's why the Bible says be careful, as it says in the book of James. If you're friends with the world, you're at war with God. Because you can't have it both. The world doesn't know us. The world doesn't get us. The world doesn't relate to us. Because we realize we're focused on heaven and the future, not on what's going on in this world. And I just want to tell you this, and I'm not trying to pick. If you find yourself getting more and more and more comfortable down here, I believe that's a warning sign and a red flag. Because you need to stop and say, wait a second. The deeper I go in the Lord, the more the world doesn't know me because I'm closer to Jesus Christ. And so that's the blessing of being a child of God. The inheritance, the relationship, the access, but also realizing the world doesn't get us. Now look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. Look at the wording there. We are children of God. We're talking about the future, but we're also the child of God right now. And it's not yet been revealed to us what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What's it really like up there? I mean, what's it going to be like for all of eternity? We really don't know a whole lot. Isn't that fascinating? Your eternal goal, the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about it. I mean, there's some little tidbits here and there. You know, we're not floating around like spirits. We'll have a body. Jesus ate after he, you know, rose from the dead. There's some things like that that we see some glimpses here and there. But verse 2, really what it comes down to is a lot of things haven't been revealed. And I think it hasn't been revealed because we can't fully grasp and understand what it's going to be like. 
We can't. So please note what the Bible is saying in verse 2. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So if the Bible says it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, I don't mean to step on anybody's toes here. Be careful when you go into the Christian bookstore and you can buy a book that tells you what it's going to be like. Be very careful with that. Because the Bible just told me it has not yet been revealed what it should be like. But yet I can go see movies and read books that tell me what it's going to be like. I don't know. First John just told me I don't know. And to go even one step further in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells a story about a man that went up to the third heaven, the abode of God. He says it's inexpressible words. It's astounding words. So Paul says it's inexpressible. You can't understand it. And he says it's not lawful for a man to talk about it. Southern translation said you're not allowed to tell about it and you're not permitted to tell about it. And I just always find it fascinating when I can go in the Christian bookstore and find a book that tells me all about it. Just be careful, folks. Stick to what the Bible has to say. The Bible says it hasn't been revealed yet. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're not even supposed to talk about it because we can't even put it into words. It'd be unlawful. It's sinful to do it. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 13, we only know in part and we see dimly. That's all. We only know in part and we see dimly. We can't fully explain it. I think if you could explain heaven and it was that easy to grasp, then how amazing could it really be? Part of the amazingness of heaven, it is so absolutely amazing, words can't express what it's like. And that's part of faith that we go there. And know that we now that we know that we're going to go there. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This spurs us on to say, I, I want heaven. I I'm looking forward to this. And so this purifies me. This makes me stop and think, saying, Lord, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do that? Because I want that goal of heaven. And that's what gives me and drives me on is what's waiting for me. And that hope in him, hope in Jesus Christ, purifies me to say, I want to live a godly life down here because I know what's expected of me up there through Jesus Christ. And it spurs me on to do that. I think a lot of times I see Christians get caught up in this world is because they're not really thinking about heaven. They're just thinking about the next joy and pleasure down here. And when you think about the joy and pleasure down here, man, then you're not thinking about eternity. When you're not thinking about eternity, you're going to get caught up in a lot of problems down here. Keep a heavenly mindset like the book of Colossians says because you are a child of God. Now, before we get into the next part here, any quick questions, comments about anything with that before we move on here about heaven or any of those passages we talked about there? Make sure you're all on the same page. We're good? Mark. To an extent, yeah. So if a person has dies and the Lord sends them back and they describe what they saw in heaven, they're not saying they're not revealing what they were. They're just revealing what they saw. Right, but the ba balance verse to that is the one in first second Corinthians twelve where Paul said, not allowed to tell about it, not permitted to tell, not lawful for a man to speak about it. So if Paul, who we're assuming was the guy that went up to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, came back and said, listen, guys, I can't even tell you. I'm not supposed to even talk about what went on up there. 
to me, that would also seem to say, well, then that's what it's supposed to be. Revelation gives us a glimpse into heaven. There's no doubt about that, and that's through the Bible. The Bible in other places gives us a glimpse. What Paul is saying, though, is to come back in humanly form and human words to try to explain this heavenly scene, he goes, nope, not allowed to do it. So I stick to the 2 Corinthians 12. It's not lawful for a man to talk about it. It's not allowed, not permitted. So... There are things revealed about heaven. Sure, you can go to Isaiah and read about stuff. You can go and read in Revelation. But for us to come back in those stories, I just think we've got to be careful about that because it goes with what the rest of the Bible says is not permitted to talk about it. That's, that's my take on it. Ryan. Like, like you said, the Bible says it's inexpressible words. Um, not lawful for a man to utter. I guess that's the way I kind of stick with it there. But you still get a glimpse of it. Because there is passages in the Bible that talk about it. But to go into the detail that you see some of those books going into and some of those movies going into, I think we just got to be careful with that and take it back to the passages of Scripture. John. Well, right, I understand what you're saying. But most of the time when we think about the third heaven, is the first heaven is considered the sky that we see. Second heaven is considered the space that we see, the universe. And the third heaven is the abode of God. That's how that's usually kind of defined there a little bit. They would have been referring to heaven, yeah, as we call heavens. Yeah. Yeah. key word there is, I don't think. And, and that's where, that's your take, Mark. That's your call. Right. That's true. But we're not talking about Colton. I don't know who Colton is. Um, we're talking about Paul. And Paul said... It's not lawful for me to talk about, not permitted to. So I'm, I'm going to stick with that. Those other ones, I can't say yeah or nay to. But I know the scripture tells me that for Paul, he said, assuming it was Paul, not allowed, not permitted, not lawful. And so I'm going to go with that line. I'm going to let my pendulum swing towards God's word that rather than some of those other stories. So, And we can disagree on that. That's fine. 
If that blessed you, then that's between you and the Lord. But I'm going to stick with what it says right here. It has not yet been revealed and inexpressible words, not allowed to tell, not permitted to tell. I think that's the black and white of scriptures with it. So that's what I'm going to, I'm going to stick with that. Four-year-old, that's great. Paul was probably 54. I'm still going to stick with Paul. So I'm sticking with Paul. Holy Spirit inspired God's word. So verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. There are some pretty powerful passages in there. I, I keep these. I have a little um, heresy section that I keep in my office. Uh, I started collecting this after I got saved. This one I have right here is 23 years old. 23 years old. There was a guy that came out to Northwest State Community College when I was out there, literally um, in the atrium at Northwest, got a soapbox, stood on it, and started yelling at everybody. And he handed this out. Starts out really good to all pleasure seekers and self seekers. And it says here, and I just make one little point. His last point is this Jesus came to save his people from their sins. If you still sin, you're not saved. And he came, that was his main point. If you are still sinning, you're not saved. And so, therefore, if you are saved, you have reached a point where you will not sin. And there's certain denominations that carry that idea through, that you can reach this point of sanctification of where you don't sin. That's a real dangerous teaching. And they, you stop and say, well, how can they be taking this out of context? Verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Okay, well, you've got to remember what John already told us, though. Jump back to 1 John chapter 1. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John has already established the fact that he's talking about we are going to sin. That's why 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're going to sin. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Paul said, I stumble every day. That's the reality. So how do we find this? What are we talking about here in verses 6 and verse 9? A couple of different things that's going on here. We have to understand what sin is. Jump back to verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's laws. That's what it is. He's a holy God. He's a perfect God. That's what he wants. He wants holiness and perfection. We can't get holiness and perfection on our own. That is why Jesus Christ died for our sins. So sin is breaking God's law. Verse 4 makes sense. Verse 5, now we see Jesus. And you know that He, Jesus, was manifested. He appeared. He came to take away our sins. And in Him, there is no sin. So that we can all agree with too. Great passage with that. If you're a note taker, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For He made Him who knew no sin... To be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Great passage. He that knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus Christ, who is sinless, took my sin upon Him, and now I can take Jesus' righteousness, the fancy word that means just to be made right, and so I can take Jesus' righteousness, and I can be righteous in the eyes of God through what Christ did. So I don't think we have a problem with verse 4. We don't have a problem with verse 5. Verse 6. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. 
Well, I sure hope I abide in him. I hope I remain in him. That's the word abide. John, who also wrote the book of John, goes into a lot of detail of this in John 15, saying as a believer, you're supposed to abide in Christ. You're supposed to remain in Christ. You're supposed to be in Christ. So if I'm in Christ, I'm not going to sin. This is where it gets a little hard. Now, some of your translations read it just a little bit different. If you have NIV out there or NLT, it says keep on sinning. That's the connotation it's carrying, is whoever remains in, in him does not keep on sinning. See, and I'm not going to make any claim whatsoever that I'm an expert on Greek because I'm not. But this Greek can be also be translated to the idea of does not keep on sinning. It's a certain tense that says you can't keep practicing sin. What this passage is trying to say is if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you can't keep staying in sin. You can't. Because whoever sins, verse 6, whoever continues to sin has neither seen him nor known him. Now, if you're out there thinking, well, I'm in trouble now because I still sin. Man, I, I still keep sinning. What this is talking about in 6, same verb translated in verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. One Greek expert that I read says it carries the idea of continual habitual sin. You know it's wrong, and you're still going to keep on doing it, and you don't care. You would rather take that quote-unquote pleasure of sin than what the truth of God says, and you continue to go down that point. John says at that point, are you really even saved? Because if you're continuing down that path of sin and choosing that, you have to stop and say, am I really saved? Now, this is just not John saying this. Go with me too, real quick to 2 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians 13. Paul says the same thing. Take a look here at 2 Corinthians 13. Take a look at uh, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? By trust you will know that you are, we are not disqualified. He says, test yourself. Are you really a believer? What, what makes you a believer? What, if someone came up to you and said, are you a Christian? And you would say yes. And they would say, how do you know? Can we understand from a theological standpoint, remember theology just means the study of God. Can we study, understand from a theological standpoint, how am I a Christian? What makes me a Christian? What does that mean that I am a Christian? If our first response back is, I mean, I don't know. I guess I just, I mean, I've always gone to church. I've always done this. Well, what, wait a second here. Test yourselves. Are you really in the faith? And this is not just John saying it. It's not just Paul saying it. Now let's look at what Jesus said. Go with us to Matthew 7, please. Matthew 7. Jesus has some pretty strong words here in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, let's go ahead and start in verse 17. Matthew 7, 17. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. That's just a simple fact right there. You're either a good tree bearing good fruit or a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you will know them. Jesus is saying the same thing. If you are a follower of him, you will produce good fruit. If you're not producing good fruit, that means you're producing bad fruit. And if you're producing bad fruit, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Paul said, test yourself to see if you're a Christian. John is saying in 1 John chapter 3, you can't continue in sin. If you continue down that habitual path of sin, 
you have to stop and say, am I really walking with Jesus Christ? Go back to 1 John 3 now. What are we supposed to be doing? Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So I'm supposed to practice righteousness. I'm supposed to practice being like Jesus Christ. This is not works-based salvation. Don't take it that way. It's not. This is saying, since I have been changed on the inside, it changes how I act on the outside. I have already been changed by Jesus Christ, completely by Him. Salvation is by Him alone. No question about that in any way whatsoever. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For as by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, not me. But since I have been saved, it changes how I live. I now practice righteousness. Now, I can't just say I'm a Christian. There also needs to understand that the righteousness of Jesus has to be on me. And the way that's also evident is by me going out and saying, Lord, I'm producing good fruit for you. And if I'm continuing down this habitual path of sin, I have to stop and say, am I really a Christian? So that means sometimes these people that we talk to, oh yeah, I'm a believer, okay? Why is it your lifestyle's not acting up? I mean, excuse me, not adding up to it. I'm not in, in picking, I'm not judging, I'm looking at fruit. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But I hope that there's not a habitual sin in my life that I'm saying, Lord, I really don't care about it. I know it's wrong, but I'm still going to keep on doing it. I hope I'm practicing righteousness. But to practice righteousness also shows effort. You're practicing it. Paul uses the example of running all the time. That's one of his favorite things to talk about. I don't know if he was a runner or what. But I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You know, I run. And he says, I do not run with uncertainty. He has a purpose while he's running. You know, imagine someone comes up and they talk about running. And they say, oh, are you a runner? They say, yeah, I'm, I'm a runner. Oh, really? What do you like to run? Oh, I don't run. Well, then how are you a runner? Because I, I, I'm a runner. But you don't actually go out, put on shoes, and literally go run. No, never run in my life. Well, then you're not a runner. Oh, I'm a runner. Based on what? A runner runs. We don't disagree with that, right? So if a runner runs, and if there is no running happening, we can't call that person a runner. Verse 7, if I'm not practicing righteousness, I can't say that I'm righteous. Once again, not by my works, but by what Jesus Christ has done in me. And this is where he says in verse 7, let no one deceive you. I think there's a deception going around that basically says, oh, you, you say you're a Christian, great. Okay, your lifestyle doesn't match it up in any way whatsoever, but we're just going to completely, utterly ignore that because you said the magic words and everything's great. We've got to be careful about this because these verses are pretty straightforward right here. Verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. This is the reason that Jesus came. He might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. What is the seed that remains in him? The Bible is not completely clear on what the seed is. There's a reference in 1 Peter that maybe seems to hint that the seed is the word of God, which would make sense because for us to get saved, how do we get saved? By hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. So that makes sense. There's another passage in 2 Peter that seems to talk about the divine nature that comes inside of us, that when we get saved, that there is this divine nature, God lives in us. 
And so therefore, there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, when I want to go on and continue in sin, I can't. I'm convicted. It bothers me. And, and I see this sin and I say, Lord, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. Now, please remember, this doesn't mean you will not stumble. This does not mean you will not sin. That's not at all what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is saying, though, as a born-again believer in Christ, you can't keep continuing down this path of sin. Because there's conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's, there's things here that, that stops you and says, listen, as a child of God, you can't. You can't do this. I think there's a great example of this. Go with me to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. I always try to find an example in the Bible. Of, okay, where can we see this in practice? Because it'd be really easy to walk away from a teaching like this saying, Okay, I've been struggling with this sin for 10, 15, 20 years. I still battle at it. According to this, I'm not saved. Great, I'm lost. When that sin comes to your attention, are you convicted? When that sin comes to your attention, do you confess it? When that sin comes to your attention, do you stop and is there a holy hatred of it? Where you stop and say, Lord, I don't want to do this. Is there, are there works befitting repentance? Well, well, yeah, I mean, I feel awful about it. I'm, I'm confessing it and I'm battling it. I'm memorizing scripture. I'm doing what I can through the Lord and through His strength. Okay, well, then you're trying to practice righteousness. I'd be worried if you sat here and said, I don't know, I don't think about it much. I don't know, I guess it's really never bothered me. So you're, you're telling me you know what you're doing is wrong. You understand that it's wrong according to the Bible, but it really doesn't bother you. I guess. I'd be a little nervous at that point. David is a great example of this. 2 Samuel 11, you know the story. David Bathsheba. We're not going to spend a lot of time in 2 Samuel 11. You know what happens. David should have been out to battle. He's not out to battle. David's being lazy. shouldn't have been being lazy. He saw Bathsheba. He wanted Bathsheba. He brought Bathsheba over. He slept with Bathsheba. Hopefully no harm, no foul. No one will ever find out about it because her husband Uriah is out to battle. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Okay, now we got a problem. Bring Uriah back. Uriah will obviously want to come back and be with his wife. We'll just say that the baby is his. Uriah is too honorable to come and be with his wife because he says the rest of the guys are out in the battle. Why should I be the pleasures of my wife? That's not fair, so he won't. David says, let's get this guy drunk. Obviously, when he's drunk, he will. Well, he gets drunk and he passes out and he doesn't do anything. So now David says, the only thing I can do is kill Uriah. And so I send Uriah into the battle. I have everybody else retreat. And Uriah is killed. And now David looks like the good guy. Verse 26, 2 Samuel 11. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It all looks good. Honeymoon baby happened real quick. No problems. Boy, David is such a great guy. Uriah is dead. And he takes Bathsheba and says, I'll take care of you. Boy, we just love David. Fast forward about a year. Now you have 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan the prophet comes in and says, David, I'd like to get a chance to talk to you. David said, sure, talk. Verse 1, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, excuse me, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and was his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. 
How dare the rich man take the poor man's lamb? How dare the rich man step in who had whatever he wanted and exploit this poor man? Verse 6, he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Now, stop right there. You are the man, David. Right here is where you get the proverbial fork in the road. Taking what we have learned in 1 John 3, there's going to be some people who are going to say, I have all the excuses in the world why I'm not guilty. I'm the king. I can do what I want. It's my kingdom. It's my people. It's my everything. Are you going to tell me no? You're going to have people that are going to say, listen, I know it was wrong, and you're going to get the token little, I'm sorry. Okay? But then how does David actually respond? Nathan gives him this long speech. And look what David says, verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See, how do we know? How do we know that we want to practice righteousness? Because when sin is brought to us and it's revealed to us through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the light of God's word, when it's revealed to us, we stop and say, I've sinned. I'm wrong. Look what happens, 13. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. That's the beauty of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So how long can someone go and sin? I don't know. I'm not going to even attempt to give you a time frame. David won a year. He won a year. But when the sin was brought to his attention, he confessed, he repented, and he said, I am wrong. How do we know his heart? One last reference. Go with me to Psalm 51, please. Psalm 51. Read the little description of Psalm 51 with me. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So now we see what was going on in David's heart when his sin was revealed. Verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's repentant. He's sorrowful. He changes directions. He wants to practice righteousness. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So, taking all this and putting it together, if you're here tonight and we read these passages in 1 John 3, and you stop and you say, there's something in my life and it's sin. And I know it's sin. What are you going to do? You're just going to let it go and say it's not that big a deal? If you are, be really careful. Really careful. Because according to Paul, test yourself to see if you're a Christian. According to Jesus in Matthew 7, what type of fruit are you producing? Be careful. Because a a born-again child of God is going to stop and see that sin and say, my heart's broken over this. I struggle with it. I battle it. I need help. I need strength. I need the power of God, and I don't want to be this way. I want to practice righteousness. And you're going to have a David moment where that sin is brought to your attention. You stop and say, I'm wrong, Lord. Help me. Now, I would love to tell you that you could reach this point, then, well, that sin will never affect you again. As long as there's flesh on your bones, that sin's going to affect you. Because we're not glorified yet and made perfect until we get to heaven. I, I've been saved now, um, just got about 25 years ago, this time, this season right here. 
And if you would ask me 25 years ago, would I still be struggling with some of the same things that I struggled 25 years ago? I would say, of course not. After a quarter of a century, I would have grown and passed that. Man, some of those things are still there. Remember what God told Cain back in Genesis. Sin is waiting for you at the door. It wants you. It wants to destroy you. John 10.10, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ has come that we may have life and have life more abundantly. So I don't know where you're at spiritually. But if there's something in your life that you know is wrong and that's brought to your attention through the conviction of the Holy Spirit or through God's word, today is the day to stop and say, I'm, I'm done with this. I don't want this anymore. I'm David. I have sinned against the Lord. I want to go forward in you, Lord. I want to practice righteousness. And I want the accountability of the body of Christ. I want the prayers of the body of Christ. I want to move forward in righteousness, not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And aren't you thankful that you have a God that loves you, forgives you, grace, mercy? That's what we want to focus on. So what we're going to do is this. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. I'm going to stick around up here. If anybody's got anything they want to pray about, come on up. Maybe there's something that's bringing you down. Yeah, Kenny. Yes. You asked for prayer for them uh, last Wednesday, right? Yes. We prayed. God heard. God answered. Amen. Amen. So we're going to have a season, a time of prayer. We're going to pray right now. Then, and once I'm done praying, if anybody needs to go, you got kids back there. you got to get going. But if you got something you want to pray about, come on up here. Let's pray. And let's give this over to the Lord. So, Lord, we just come to you now, and we're thankful for your word. Lord, your word doesn't return void. Help us to really stop and just think about these words tonight and to really come into our lives and, and shine a light into our heart. Is there something that we're wrong on that you, through your grace and mercy, want to love us and correct us on? Thank you for your conviction. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, for all things. We love you. We praise you. We want to be a righteous people for you, not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. And I think of what it says in Peter, judgment begins at the house of God. Lord, reveal what we need to work on through you. And we come to you now and we say thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless. If you've got anything you want to pray about, feel free to pop up.